The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead as we kick off the week. A government shutdown looking more and more likely, but will it actually help reduce the budget deficit? We've got the latest from Washington and why it so far hasn't been bad news for the markets, which are fighting back into the green today. And our market guest agrees. Last fall, she added to technology when the algos were running for the hills. And she says that this sell-off is setting up for some of the same opportunities. Plus, checking out the post-pandemic economy resulting in a surprisingly high number of hotel defaults. We'll speak with one big lender about why and how much worse it could get. First, though, let's get today's markets with Bob Bassani over at the New York Stock Exchange. Little better picture this afternoon, Bob. Yes, uh, we did not start off well, a continuation of last week's debacle. But mid-morning, we turned around. Let's just call everything flattish at this point. But there's been a lot of damage underneath the surface here. The S&P is down almost 4% for the month. That's a terrible performance. Dow's only down 2% because of health care did a little bit better. Uh, some of the uh, energy names outperformed, like Chevron. Uh, NASDAQ's, to, <laughs> NASDAQ's down about 6%. Russell 2000 down about 7%. So it's been rough on some of the small cap names here. Look at the Dow laggards. You can see the effects higher interest rates have. It impacts consumer discretionary stocks and it impacts technology stocks. Nike's just been practically straight down for a couple weeks. Salesforce, big leader uh, in tech and Apple week. And the credit cards like Visa. Annex not acting well at all in the last couple of weeks. There's your impact. Consumer, consumer spending uh, and technology stocks. Real estate investment trusts, higher rates. That's obviously a Connection there. You see names like Crown Castle, which is does wireless infrastructure, American Tower, that's cell phone towers too, Mid America's apartments, of course, are apartment complexes. Health Peak uh, sells uh, real healthcare uh, real estate centers, uh, but it's essentially office buildings. Weakness there. And even when you look at the old market leaders, remember two months ago, semiconductors were all at or near new highs. Well, it's been a rough couple of months there, and particularly in the month of September. NVIDIA, which was the big market leader, is down notably for the month. Teradyne, Marvel, ST Micro, uh, AMD, all big market leaders all week this month here. So if you had the problem, one problem, it's pretty obvious at this point. The main issue is rising yields. I know people are worried about seasonals and the government shutdown and student debt. Believe me, it pales in comparison to the rising yields issues because stocks and bonds are selling off at the same time. This happened last year. Remember, we have been dealing with an historic change here. Since the 1980s, yields have been lower and it's been a tailwind for, for stocks. It's not anymore. And now this is a major problem. The markets are trying to digest this higher rates for longer environment. And as you can see, you get what we call this uh, this pocket picker market, Kelly, where you try to buy rallies, but because rates keep rising, they, they never go anywhere. And that's been the story for the last month. Kelly, back to you. And I love how you highlight the way that that's predominating right now, uh, what's, what's going on with yields. Bob, thank you very much. We appreciate it, our Bob Bassani. And in so, just six days, the government's funding will end, and it's looking less and less likely that Congress can get a deal done to avoid a shutdown. Let's get out to Emily Wilkins in Washington with the very latest for us. Emily? 
Hey, Kelly. Well, there's a lot that's happening in D.C., but at this point, there just does not seem to be a path to avoid a shutdown by Saturday night. That means Sunday morning, October 1st government looks to be in a shutdown. Still have a lot of action going on. The House last week tried and failed to pass multiple spending bills. So they've decided this week they're going to be focusing on those long-term spending bills. They want to get conservative cuts and conservative priorities across the line. But that does nothing for a shutdown. Now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy did tell reporters this morning that he is still hoping to bring a stopgap short-term bill after some of those long-term bills passed. But he also had some critiques for lawmakers in his own party who have voted against spending bills in recent weeks, saying that they don't have a strategy. Listen to what he said. You have to keep the government open. I mean, if people want to close the government, it only makes them weaker. Why would they want to stop paying the troops or stop paying the border agents or the Coast Guard? I don't understand how that makes you stronger. I don't understand what point you're trying to make. Now, the Senate has also stepped in. They are now working on a short, their own short-term spending bill that they hope would be bipartisan. But it's not clear when the bill is going to be done, and then it is going to take time to pass. So again, even with the Senate route, we're still looking at potentially going into a shutdown. And this is going to have potentially big impacts. When we had the longest shutdown, 34 full days back in 2018 and 2019, we saw the economy take an $11 billion hit. And the White House is already telling fate federal agencies to get prepared for a shutdown. You could see 2 million federal workers plus military go without pay. And Kelly, that has the potential to just have a huge impact on the economy. I just want them to put out the jobs report and CPI and find a way to do that and ring good, fence good that luck, somehow. Because that, that doesn't happen either. With, with the government shutdown, we're not going to see that those economic indicators. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it'll be frustrating. Emily, thank you for now. We appreciate it, Emily Wilkins. We may be inching closer to a shutdown, but my next guest says the markets will remain largely unaffected, even as proposals show no sign of helping to close that soaring budget deficit. Joining me now is Ed Mills, Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. Ed, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. So I think it's interesting that, if anything, we're looking at the biggest impact on the rates market, and that itself is kind of moving the stock market, but you still don't think there's going to be a huge effect? Yeah, Kelly. So what we did at Raymond James is looked at all of the shutdowns since 1995 and said, what did the market do? Because we hear a lot from clients, is this a real concern? And what we found was very counterintuitive. Since 1995, when the market has shut down, the, when the government shut down, the market's gone up. There's a little bit of a fear trade sometimes in the uh, Treasury markets, but I don't think that this is something that investors really need to fear. And actually, 30 days after the shutdown, universally, the market has been up since 1995. I'm just not, I, you know, I think what's different this time, and it's not that we, look, we all know the economic impact of a shutdown is, is de minimis, but it does feel like the fiscal picture is very different this time. You know, even though we've had interest rates at these levels before, it was never with kind of deficit and debts as high as they are. And so I'm just not sure how comparable. In other words, if we said forget about the shutdown, but what do we do about the fiscal picture? What should be done, right? The 10 years over four and a half percent today. What would you say? Yeah, Kelly, I think you kind of are hitting on exactly what Jay Powell said last week, which there's a very long list out there. And I do think that those need to be concerns. I think we look at the right track, wrong track of the country and, and people are not very optimistic and is that going to lead to changes in consumer sentiment? Is that going to lead to changes in consumer behavior, which does have a market implication? I know that uh, there's a lot of conversation about student loans. That is a potential headwind here, but beneath the surface, there's so many changes to the way in which we'll pay student loans 
that the resumption is a lot less than what I think people think. So absolutely, tons of headwinds here, Kelly. I just think that they're less than what people want to tell the story they actually are. So what is the fight in Washington over? Is it over spending levels? Um, you know, can you, we know that the deficit this year was much higher than expected, about $2 trillion. It looks like we're closing out double what we had last year. What's it expected to be for the next 12 months? Yeah, it's it's only going higher at this point. When we look back to the debt limit deal, uh, that didn't actually cut funding. That actually reduced the increase in funding. In the background, you have the Inflation Reduction Act, you have the Chips and Science Act, you have the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, all adding to the fiscal support that is out there. Most of that money hasn't even started to go out the door. We have a 10-year runway on most of that still to come. The fight that you ask about really is within the House Freedom Caucus. There's a group that are not happy at the direction in which Speaker McCarthy is leading his caucus, right. and they want to have the fight. The problem there is they don't have a specific ask. They exactly. know that they might want to shut down the government, but they don't know what's next. So th that would be my question for, you know, as we follow this along. And dissatisfaction with the Speaker, you know, interpolitical things, they're, they're mildly interesting, not hugely so. But is there going to be a specific fight over a specific amount of spending or over, you know, are, are we at that stage of this yet? Is that is that really no. a factor here or not? Not really. I mean, I think the fight that we're talking about are pennies. When you talk about the other things that we highlighted, those are massive multi hundred of billions or trillions of dollars that are out there. So I don't think that comes. And what I'm really focused on here, Kelly, is that all the attention has been on the House. But really, the action, I think, is going to originate in the Senate. Hmm. If the Senate is able to pass a continuing resolution that keeps the government open, my expectation that could get 75, 80 votes. And then it's only a matter of time before the House has to consider that. That would probably have more than 300 votes. So even if we have a shutdown, yeah. it would be short lived. And then when we get to the final appropriations bills, they're probably not all that much different than what we already have for funding levels in law passed under the debt limit deal yeah. earlier this year. Let me ask you a final question, Ed, that kind of turns this on its head, because we keep asking, what would the shutdown mean for markets? Well, what do markets mean for, for the shutdown or for the politics of this going forward? Does the fact that the 10-year yields at 4.5% in the 30s where it is, and the, you know, you know better than anybody what that math implies for interest service costs, for future deficits and so forth. At what point does, do rates put pressure on the government and not the other way around? Yeah, Kelly, one thing I tell clients all the time at Raymond James is that when you want government to act, you look for one of two things, a crisis or a deadline. Right. Uh, we do have a deadline with the debt uh, with the government funding here. There is this growing crisis in the background as the debt service burden is going to eclipse the amount of money we spend on everything discretionary. That's a coming crisis. It's not a today crisis, at least as they think about it on Capitol Hill. But the politics only get worse as it relates to additional government funding anytime into the future. All right, Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope to see you back. Well, I don't know if I'd hope to see you back here soon because we anytime. only see you if there's a crisis or a deadline. <laughs> there's plenty here in D.C. Thank you, Ed, uh, for thank joining you, us today. Ed Mills from Raymond James. Stocks are headed for another negative month as we enter the last trading week of September. And my next guest is using this weakness to jump in, especially to some of the mega cap tech stocks. Here with me now is Nancy Tangler. She's CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments. Also also out with a new edition of her book, 
The Women's Guide to Successful Investing, Achieving Financial Security, and Realizing Your Goals. Congrats. Thank you, no Kelly. Small, even, even updating, this is no small feat. You know, it's harder it's, to update. Do you think? Absolutely. Why? Because you have to go in and say, is that still relevant? What ah. I think? Oh, that wasn't really well written. Yeah. <laughs> Not to over, you know, do the analogy, but they just updated, uh, you know, Ben, the Graham security analysis. Oh, and they're a little more. <laughs> saying a little some, more. Some of yeah. the same thing. I'll circle back to this in a minute, but are you buying tech stocks here? We are selectively. We were selling in the summer. Remember, we were buying in October and then we, um, you know, they, they ran pretty dramatically. So we were selling in September. I'm, I'm sorry, in July, June, May. Uh, and we were adding to industrials. Um, hmm. we, we have now started to trim some of those stocks that have done really well. And we are stepping back in. So one of the names we like is a name that was punished uh, on the earnings call after the earnings call. That's Oracle. Oh, uh, yeah. We think that, you know, it's not nearly as bad as what people thought. And so if you go in and look and you see the margins are expanding. You take Cerner out of the mix. Cloud computing's growing dramatically. Law of small numbers to be sure, but they really are demonstrating that they can grow and expand margins at the same time. Do you think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Tom Lee last week before the Fed meeting, but do you think the market's going to pick momentum back up into the end of the year? Or do you think whether it's rates or whatever piece of this we're discussing, it remains kind of a lid on things? I no, I think I think we'll get a rally going into year end. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't always happen, as we all know. Just go back to 2018 or last year. Um, well, last year it did. But um, I think one of the things that you have to think about is, you know, earnings really ultimately drive the price of stock. We don't talk about them very much except during earnings season. And they are improving, and the market has sniffed that out. But I think one of the things that you want to be focused on in third quarter is who's delivering on margins. And that's what we're, we are focused on. Many of the companies, particularly in tech, were raising mar- margin guidance. Hmm. And we're down from historical highs for the S&P margins. But I still think that's a place where you want to be focused. Because if I'm not mistaken, there is a sense or, or the data show that corporate revenues as a whole are flatlining. Mm-hmm. I think for the next quarter or something that we're, we're like not even expecting any growth there. So the, if that's the case, especially with inflation receding, it wouldn't be surprising. But it means companies are going to have to try all the harder to wring earnings growth out of that. But some of that is also skewed by by sectors, right? Mm-hmm. So just from an earnings standpoint, if you took energy out last last quarter, we'd be up three and a half four percent instead mm-hmm. of down. The earning uh, energy was down like 40, 48 percent. So I think you, you have it is a, an environment where you need to pick your sectors, you need to pick your stocks. Indexing is harder in this environment because of the averages. And, um, you know, we, we have this breadth issue, but that's actually created opportunities for us. Then lastly, before I want to ask you about the book, but so are you buying in energy or are you buying in some of these that you mentioned, Oracle? Are there kind of any others that jump out to you here? Yeah. So in energy, uh, one of the names we like a lot is EOG. It's down for the year and oil. I mean, just in the last three months, it's up like 16 percent. Mm-hmm. But Oil, Brent, is up 33. So you're not seeing the pull through, and I think some of that will come through. But separately, you're getting about $7 in dividends. It was like seven forty wow. in special and regular dividends on a trailing one-year basis. So I can, I'm getting paid to wait, and we like so we like that upstream name. And then in technology, we still like names like Broadcom. It's one of our largest holdings. We've had to trim it. But that, that's a great place to be. We still hold, hold Microsoft. They just raised the dividend 10%. You're getting paid not a ton from a, um, a yield standpoint, but the dividend's hefty. It's growing about 10% per year. That, that's a great offset to inflation. All right, so we'll give that something for people to think about. Meantime, we've caused some consternation in our offices, Nancy. With this assertion, and maybe you can delve into it for a moment, that 
even as women are more and more becoming breadwinners, at least at some point in their kind of family's financial lives, a lot of the decisions, apparently they're still delegating to men. So give us the data. Is this still, and, and is it a problem or, you know, is it the sense of, of, of who's in charge, but I'm still aware, or do they not even know what's going on? So just explain a little bit about this dynamic that you okay. see. Yeah, so it is unpopular. I love men. I just want that on the record. <laughs> I was on a show recently, and I said women make better investors, and it did create a little kerfuffle. But it is true. It's supported by the data. Women are going to control $93 trillion of assets uh, in 2023. $95 trillion, sorry. And uh, they tend to excuse themselves from the conversation. Research shows that at the margin, millennials are deferring more than the baby boomer generation, which is my generation, and, and we weren't all that engaged. But the problem, Kelly, is the average age of a first divorce in the U.S. is for a woman is 30 years old. Average age of a for widow, for, for women, obviously, mm-hmm. widow in the U.S., 59. Mm-hmm. It's exactly how old I was. Mm-hmm. You're not ready. It's too young. And if you haven't been engaged, I was, obviously, mm-hmm. in the process, it's devastating. And there's no safety net to carry you through. And typically, these women do not have a relationship with their advise, the, the advisor because the husband maintained the relationship. So they end up firing them to the tune of two-thirds. That's expensive. It hurts performance. I see it every day in our firm. And it, it's, it really bothers me. And now, Journal had an article about women, um, baby boomers, not just women, being homeless in retirement. People are not saving enough. So what I try to encourage in the book is it's never too late. Uh, One of the examples I give is a woman who started investing on a fixed income and died with $5 million. Wow. I mean, she lived to be 102, so (laughs) there's that. But um, there's a lot of anecdotes and stories from my clients who have done things right and some who have anonymously not done things right. And hopefully, you know, people and women in particular will be able to learn from it. I always appreciate when people bring their own life experience to bear and trying to kind of help others through that. The Women's Guide to Successful Investing, second edition. Second edition. So you're getting the full sweat of her brow here. Nancy, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Kelly. We really appreciate it. Nancy, thank she and other market experts are joining CNBC's Financial Advisors Summit on October 12th, where they will discuss what they're doing for clients as we head into the last quarter of the year. To join, scan that QR code to register or visit cnbcevents.com FA. And coming up here, a tentative deal for Hollywood writers, but it's not finalized yet, nor has an agreement with the actors been reached. We'll look at what's next and what it means for all of these stocks involved. Plus, hotel owners are under pressure as travel demand eases and cost to service loans rise. Could this be the next big pressure point in commercial real estate? We'll ask the CEO of one of the big CRE lenders about what he sees ahead. And as we go to break, here's a quick check on markets. Dow's green by 18 points, reversing earlier losses. Biggest gains in the Russell 2000 small caps. You know what they say. Sell Rosh Hashanah, buy Yom Kippur. 10-year yield, uh, 452. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Hollywood writers have reached a tentative agreement with the studios and streamers after nearly 150 days on the picket line. But my next guest says the media recalibration is far from over. Let's bring in Laura Martin, Needham's senior analyst covering media and tech. Laura, it's good to have you back here. And where, where are we in this process? So we thank goodness. I'm so happy the writers are going back to work after five months. It's really important for the L.A. economy and it's really important for the writers. I think too often because they're behind the camera, they get undervalued. So I applaud this decision to get the writers back to work. We still have SAG-AFRA, which has about six times more people out of work. And we can't start making content to have both unions finalized, agreed, and voted on their, you know, the big population that they want to take the deal. But looks like we're, at, you know, inching towards that settlement date. And so it seems like the writers are going to be finished first, which is fantastic news. What is the, you know, what does it really mean? So I, I'm trying to, we, I don't know if we know the full details of the agreement yet, but it sounds like that uh, they want, they're going to get, like, they're going to get a bigger share of uh, shows that do well. They're going to get a pay raise in general. I mean, how significant are these potential wins to the companies that now have to, you know, provide them? So, so great question, because really the guilds only talk about the youngest writers, right? So the big budget writers that work on Marvel or Star Wars or these big hundred million dollar movies, this agreement doesn't govern them. Those are all those guys have talent agents and they get much more than minimum. This is about people coming into the industry and minimum numbers of writers on the sets they got. They compromised on AI. They did get a bigger participation in hit franchises when they write them. They did get a higher base raise. But it's it's really talking about the 20 to 25 year old who's just coming into the business and protecting a living wage for that let me call it new rung of writers. So it makes it more attractive to become a writer in Hollywood than if you didn't have these deal terms. But it really doesn't affect the big studios who are doing 100 and 200 million dollar movies because they're not using this kind of base level person. They're using people who are very well established typically. And so in other words, you don't think this really changes the financial picture for them? I do not. I think this is the 90-10 rule. This is about having the union be able to get people to come be writers in Hollywood. And it's important to have writers have a living wage. So it's great for the, the, like the low-end writers who are new to the union. But this isn't going to affect the big, uh, the big price tag for writers on big films. I'm curious about in the case of Disney as well, where we saw this massive investment in the parks last week. And I know you were a little concerned about it. Um, but... You know, they look across the businesses and even if this doesn't change the economics for streaming, the economics are already pretty challenging. What else can they do to try to turn that in their favor at a time when it's almost like parks are the new ESPN? I, I know they're not as significant, maybe, in terms of what they what ESPN used to be for. I think it used to be 40 percent of their operating income. Right. It was just massive. Um, but but where does this leave Disney in particular, do you think? So Iger said on stage to those of us who went to Orlando to see him speak um, that he's going to cut the number of films and TV series, and they're also going to lower the average budget for TV series and films they're doing, all of which is about focus. And they're also going to focus on franchises, like specifically on Pixar. They did two um 
They did two new films, Elemental, and they've both done okay, you know, Red. They've done they've done okay, but he's like, no, we need to go back and be doing sequels of Toy Story, like other Pixar franchises that have built-in audiences, because that is lower risk, because you bring an audience with you to the next sequel. So I expect us to see more sequels, sort of like the Avengers have done. Maybe they're, they're spin-offs of individual characters that prove popular, but that is lower risk and higher return, typically, than creating a whole new you know, set of fans from scratch as Disney has done at Pixar recently. I think we're going to see that end and yeah. go back to sequels at the Walt Disney Company. So if, if these negotiations were part of a major recalibration happening at all the major streamers and content providers, what is the next chapter in this story, do you think, broadly speaking? So I think what's next is, oh my gosh, the French were right. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Hmm. I think what happens in the, in the data point I would use is the charter Disney deal. Charter and Comcast and all these linear TV companies are going to say, look, you want to raise in your fee, you have to put all your streaming assets in here, hmm. either for a fee, like, you know, Charter is going to pay Disney plus a fee or for free, ESPN is going to go in for free to Charter. That's what's about to happen. All of these streaming services are going to get rebundled with linear TV, which is going to slow the demise of linear TV because the big consumer pain point right now is you can't find the content you want to watch. Totally. Right? It's always on a streamer you don't have. So what's going to about to happen is Charter and Comcast, these linear TV who already have all of your sports, are going to pull in all these streamers before they give those companies a raise in fee. And they're going to, everything's going to be there. So people are going to go back to linear, even though it's expensive, just because they can find all their content that they want to watch in one place. Does that mean when I, I'm going back to scrolling through my channels and I'll see a channel for you know, like they've started to, that takes me to a digital destination, or are they also going to have to change the user interface? I think it will go to an app focus, sort of like a Roku or a Samsung, where there's apps, and one of them will be Comcast Linear TV, and that will have all your sports. Look, if I were Comcast, I would do the NFL now, you know, I would do them individually, but yes, I think it'll be app-based, that you can go to Tubi or Pluto or Roku channel, or I mean, but everything will be there on that app-facing page, including a linear app for your spectrum, which is, you know, your linear TV um, ecosystem. Yep. So then last question, as I think through this, is what does it mean for some of the smaller players, the Fubos, the, you know, some of those who are gaining market share, and, and if they get kind of folded back into one giant content library? Right, so I think, I think the competitive... Advantage, the competitive um, set that people are angry about is the plethora of entertainment content, none of which you can find and you can't search for it. And sometimes Yellowstone is on this streaming service and sometimes it's over here, Lord of the Ring. That's the frustration. Fubo, as you know, is sports first. It's typically single men. It's 70% men who want to watch a single season like soccer and then turn it off. Cable companies do not let you do that, right? You have to sign a one or two year contract. And so if you're a sports fan, you're forced to pay for all the months where there's not a sport you want to watch. So Fubo is going to have a niche position, in my opinion, around sports for sports fans that want a single stream or two streams, and they just want to watch one season and then turn it off and then have free free streaming for the other six months of the year. Back to the future. Uh, what, what has been the point? We'll save that for the next conversation. Laura, thank you so much. It's good to see you today. We appreciate your time. Laura Martin joining us from Needham.
And still to come, oil is on pace for a four-month win streak. As the man who called the super cycle told us would happen, we will talk to Goldman's outgoing global head of commodities, Jeff Curry, joins us ahead. And Amazon just upped the ante in the AI arms race. We've got details and whether this means it's no longer acting like Switzerland. The shares up 1.6% today with the Dow down 51. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's back in the red by 54 points right now, while the S&P hangs on to a four-point gain, and the Nasdaq is up 21 points. We had pressure earlier on that's let up somewhat. Speaking of that pressure, which has largely come from the rates complex, let's get a check on Treasuries. Uh, the 10-year yield, 452, a little bit off the session highs. Just moments ago, Moody's warned a government shutdown would be a credit negative, albeit a short-lived one. The two-year yield, five, uh, five and an eighth, let's call it, and the 30-year at 4.64% today is the highest since 2011. A couple of the other stock movers we're watching include shares of Alcoa, moving off their lows but still down 5% after naming a new president and CEO effective immediately. Outgoing CEO Roy Harvey will serve as a strategic advisor through the end of the year. Alcoa has trailed competitors big time this year. Both Kaiser and Century Aluminum are up more than 10% while it is down almost 25. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. The Biden administration loaning Poland $2 billion for its defense modernization program. The State Department announced the deal, saying it seeks to strengthen Poland's armed forces after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. will give Poland $60 million toward the cost of the $2 billion loan. Poland will use the funds to buy weapons from the U.S. All of the students who were injured in the New York bus crash last week are expected to recover that from the school superintendent who says some students are still struggling. The bus rollover killed two adults and left others seriously injured. The National Transportation Safety Board investigating that mishap. Costco offering its members medical care through online marketplace Sesame. The telehealth visits will cost $29, while mental health services will cost $79. Sesame said the clinicians will set their prices on the platform for patients to pay directly without going through insurance. Kelly, back to you. See you in a little bit. Interesting. Thank you, Tyler. And I'll get a quick check on those shares of Costco. They're down about half a percent right now near session lows on the news. Coming up, office problems are so last year. The new commercial real estate concern could be hotels. Shares of Marriott and Hilton seeing strong gains this year, but it's a different story for some struggling properties in particular. Details and who could bear the fallout, that's ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's no secret 2020 was a rough year for the travel and hospitality industry as the world shut down. But you might be surprised to hear that some of those pain points are still playing out. Moody's reporting that nearly half of the commercial mortgage-backed security loan liquidations last quarter 
were hotel loans that initially defaulted in 2020. Meanwhile, Fitch warned on hotel profits last week, citing weakening leisure demand and rising costs. My next guest says if there's a recession next year, things will only get worse. It could hurt operators' ability to make interest payments. For more, let's bring in Willie Walker, chairman and CEO of commercial real estate lender Walker and Dunlop. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Kelly. Nice to be with you. Are you the Walker from that name or was that, you know, a part of a lineage here? Uh, it's my grandfather started the company in 1937 and then my dad ran it and I now have the privilege to run it every day. Wow. Okay. Very. So you've, you guys have been through a couple of cycles. You know, it's interesting to highlight what's going on with hotels because it's not garnering a lot of headlines and it seems somewhat site selective, but it also seems to stem from higher interest payments and in some cases rising insurance costs. Well, Kelly, I think you have to think about a couple things. The stat that you just talked about as it relates to delinquencies, those are loans that defaulted in 2020 during the pandemic that are now just getting worked out. And so one of the things that I think a lot of people forget is that commercial real estate is a very slow moving industry, if you will, in the sense that you might have a default, but you're not going to get a work out of that default for several years. And so the thing now as it relates to hospitality is that if we have weakness in the consumer, if we go to a harder landing than currently projected, that will pull back on consumer spending, that will pull back on travel and leisure, and that will then soften the operating of hotels across the country. But so far since the pandemic, Leisure has held up exceedingly well. The one soft spot as it relates to hospitality has been office hospitality, if you will, CBD hotels, and they have had weakness, but travel is back and people are traveling to see clients. People are traveling to visit offices. And as a result of that, unless we have a harder landing than projected, I would think that hospitality holds up pretty well. That makes sense. And I like the first in first out idea where, yes, we're seeing the defaults, but that's because of what happened three years ago. So where do you think we're going to be looking three years from now? Is it still going to be all about office? Oh, that's, I mean, first of all, let me just double click on your comment about first in, first out. Um, the, the issue on hospitality is that they change their rents every single day, unlike office where you've got long-term leases in place. So if an office building has problems during the pandemic and people aren't going to the office, the owners still get lease payments from those renters of those offices. And so office has the longest leases. Hospitality has the shortest leases and everything in between multifamily, retail and industrial all sit somewhere in between every day. The rents get rechanged and the leases change every single day to longer term on office of about a 10 year lease. And so as a result, hospitality is always first in. It's also always first out. Um, but there is a lot of focus today on office and back to office. I would say that people's view on office is actually getting better. Sure. People are back after the Labor Day um, holidays in the office. And I think we continue to see improvement on office fundamentals going forward. No, I, I agree that it seems the longer we can kind of draw this out and see that normalization continue um, and hopefully give those people who are exposed time to work through it, maybe the less uh, pain is going to be felt in the long run. Is there anywhere, look, you know this whole industry better than any of us. Is there anywhere that you're watching where you say, you know what, this is where, you know, kind of the exposures lie and, you know, some of the people who could take, is it, we've talked about the banks, I, I don't know, just kind of talk me through that. I mean, how do, you, how do you watch the dynamics playing out here potentially over the next couple of years? So the first question when rates started to go up was, would we have significant defaults in bank portfolios that would be a solvency issue for any of the U.S. banks? Um, it is clearly so far been an earnings issue and not a solvency issue. 
Um, higher rates mean that commercial real estate writ large has a harder time paying their debt service coverage, which brings the cash flows on those properties down. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get massive defaults, which then make it so you have bank foreclosures. So the first question was, how's the banking system? So far, it's held up pretty darn well. Um, the second question would be, okay, in this higher interest rate environment, where is their opportunity? Where are investors putting their money? Um, first, multifamily has been a great asset class because at the end of the day, people need to live somewhere. People are still paying their rents. People are still living in apartment buildings. And so while the fundamentals of multifamily have fallen off quite a bit, it is still viewed as one of the very strongest commercial real estate asset classes. On the other end of the spectrum, office is the area where everyone has doubts um, because of back to office. Um, a class office, Kelly, has held up extremely well. Why? Because those firms that want their employees back in the office want highly amenitized space. Hmm. They want places where people want to go to work, and therefore they're leasing Class A office space across the country. It's the B and the C class office space that is not doing well, that has significant vacancy and therefore potential for significant defaults. Absolutely. And I like what you say that, you know, for office, it's an earnings issue for banks, not a solvency one. And with one of the office owners you spoke with last week, they like their A-class buildings and are getting higher renewal rates than expected. We will leave it on that hopeful note. <laughs> Thank you so much, Willie, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Willie Walker, CEO of Walker and Dunlop. Still to come, shares of Amazon up nearly 2% now, making it the best performer of the MAG7 today. The tech giant joining the likes of Microsoft and Salesforce, announcing an investment in a chat GPT rival. Details and implications of that deal next. Welcome back. Amazon shaking up the AI space, investing up to $4 billion in a startup called Anthropic. Anthropic? Deirdre, correct me. It's often seen as a rival to ChatGPT maker and Microsoft partner OpenAI. Our Deirdre Bosa does join us with the details in today's Tech Check. Hi, Deirdre. I say anthropic, but now you have me wondering, Kelly, if that's right. I, I think it's anthropic. But yeah. <laughs> anyways, this deal sort of hits on a few different angles of how big tech is trying to maintain its lead in generative AI. They're developing tools themselves, but they're also investing in some of the buzziest startups. Think Microsoft and OpenAI, that $13 billion investment that gave it an exclusive partnership. In this case, Amazon is investing in Anthropic. This is a chat GPT or open AI rival up to $4 billion, so significantly less. It's also different because this is an exclusive. Anthropic also has a partnership and an investment from Google. So it's sort of spreading it out. And that's sort of Amazon's strategy as well. They have said in the past that there's not going to be one model to rule it all. And so it hasn't released one chatbot that consumers can interact with. Instead, it's Amazon's strategy in generative AI has been more on the developer side. So it's providing developers with tools to build their own chat bots. Another key part of Amazon's strategy that the company really says is its edge is its custom AI chips. There's two of them. And as part of this collaboration, Kelly, uh, the company says that Anthropic is going to be training its foundational models on these chips. That's a big vote of confidence for them. But I will say, I wish there was more details. We don't know how much Anthropic is going to be leaning on those custom AI chips that Amazon is making versus an NVIDIA GPU, which we know are still far and away the most dominant um, and seen as the best chips on the market to develop generative AI applications. And maybe taking a step towards not being quite so neutral uh, in the AI wars. 
for now. Deirdre, thank you very much, our Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, oil prices have jumped more than 20% over the past four months, and Goldman sees more gains ahead. With energy the only positive sector this month, Jeff Curry will join us with what'll get Brent to 100 bucks a barrel by spring. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Energy prices are holding steady this afternoon with WTI just under $90 a barrel and Brent around 93 Oil on pace to record its fourth straight month of months of gains as well, but with Russia already relaxing its fuel ban announced just last Thursday. And with the Fed widely expected to keep rates higher for longer, will the positive momentum slow? Let's ask Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs' outgoing global head of commodities research. Jeff, first of all, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my last time at the GS head of commodities research. It's so the end of know, it. In air, I mean, we, are we going to see you again in, in another four? Or are you, is this it? Are you you're going out to the ski slopes and you're, you're we're never going to see you again? Uh, stay tuned. There, there, there'll be a follow following act, but I, I am going to try to enjoy those the, those ski slopes along the you know the next three to four months. So I, I can uh, imagine. But, but we'll be back. And uh, by the way, I was thinking about, do you know, I was on this show in April 2020, the day we went negative. So if I look back, you know, the highlights of the last 27 and a half years was I had the privilege to be talking about prices when they went negative in April of 2020. Actually, it was on this show this time. You know, thank you for that. Thank you. you know, And it's been fun to kind of every that's why every time I see you, I think about all the extremes that have happened in such a short period of time as well. So we had negative 30 or whatever we did back then. We popped up to 130 last year. But I I really thought the best articulation that I really heard of what was going on in the global economy the last several years was you talking about the purchasing power that had shifted from basically the wealthy to everybody else and the fact that we were just running out of molecules as a result. Yep. And by the way, those those types of pressures on the system, you know, they haven't gone away. So we'll we'll be talking about them for for the years to come. So. So if I were to say, OK, you know, the last time, you know, that our, our unfortunate viewers get to hear from you, they the, your parting thought was that we're in a super cycle that still has legs to it. Or is it is it just oil now because of under investment and under capacity and, and the energy transition? Or, you know, what's the next kind of five to 10 years set us up for? I mean, it's every commodity out there. You know, in fact, we still stand by the view that copper is the one best positioned over the next year because, you know, copper is the new oil. If you're going to electrify the world and given all the elements in the periodic table, the only thing that can conduct electricity sufficiently is copper. So strong demand story and like oil has got underinvestment on the supply side. Inventories are low. The only headwind right now is strong dollar in, in the property market in China. Um, but as we look out into next year and beyond, we still think it's going to go above $10,000 a ton. So we may remain quite positive on the entire complex and in copper is the best position. By the way, you know, oil is just as well positioned, but it just doesn't have as long a legs as. But as there's copper. a war on oil, right? No one's declaring war on copper. And and I, I, there's so many things I wanted to ask you about. But looking at what the UK government is doing, where in the hopes of maybe you know shoring up some electoral support, they're walking back some of their uh, major transition plans. While at the same time, California is pushing ahead. It wants scope one, two, and and kind of three disclosures down the road. So, you know. I, 
I guess I look at something like oil and say, yeah, I can see that the supply is going to be challenged. I look at something like copper and wonder if it's going to be a repeat of the famous Ehrlich uh, Simon wager where, you know, with commodities, it seems that no matter how much you say they're going to, there's going to be a shortage, supply always somehow, somehow kind of comes up to solve that. But the difference with copper is it takes decades to bring on supply. Uh, unlike oil with shale patch, you can bring it on in six months. Um, but you need capital. And one of the key points we like to say across all these commodities, it's the restriction on capital that creates the problems, not so much the commodity itself. But copper's got a double whammy. Not only is it not getting capital, it takes a really long time to actually produce. Um, but, but the bottom line, near term, I agree with you, oil's the one with the most upside. So are we still in a super cycle, broadly speaking, or is that, is that history now? No, absolutely, it's not history. We firmly stand by that that view. Um, you know, you look at the green capex that drive it more broadly. It's exceeding all expectation. China's well above where we thought. You know, copper demand in China is up 11 percent. Green capex demand in China for the first half this year is up 150 percent. Um, these types of growth rates make the commodities boom of the 2000s um, look relatively weak. And we, so when we think about the stimulus that's going to come off of the IRA, repower EU, when we look out to 2025, this is going to be real demand for um, commodities, and it'll stimulate oil demand as well. And that's what's really, we're sitting here near $100 a barrel on oil last week. You know, what was driving it is demand exceeding expectations. You know, you're up more than a half a million barrels per day above even our bullish expectations. Mm. So demand is still very much a picture, part of the picture across all these commodities. You know, it wouldn't be a, a CNBC interview, Jeff, if I didn't ask you for like try to really pin you down on your oil price target for the next couple. When are we going over 100? By the way, where's the level of demand destruction? 130, I kind of hear bandied about. Do you guys do you want to put a number to that? Have you put that? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, econometrically, historically, we'd put it somewhere in that 125, 130, but you got to control for the dollar. And the dollar um, right now is extraordinarily strong, which actually brings that level down. But if you start to put a weak dollar on it, particularly for, you know, other parts of the world, it, it really gives you room to run to the upside. And so if you think about your starting point, we're sitting here at $93 a barrel with an incredibly strong dollar backdrop. The dollar begins to weaken, it gives you room to run to the upside. Right, which then? Um, so, yeah, you got to put it in the context of what's going on um, on the dollar because that's what triggers it around the rest of the world. Fair enough, although I imagine the level of the dollars, I don't, that's like a hot seest camp kind of, I don't even know if they want to yeah. kind of proffer <laughs> that. So, who is it now? Stroyven? Don, do we talk to Don? Who's. Yeah, yeah Don, Don Stroyven, he's, he's um, replaced me and, you know, he has a great background in doing this. So, you know, he's a microeconomist and, you know, he's done some great work on looking at OPEC pricing power, which we think is critical going forward. So the team is incredibly well-staffed going forward. You got, you know, Nick Snowden on the metal side and Sam Dart on the gas side. So uh, it's in really good hands. And, uh, you know, I look forward to reading what they're going to be publishing going forward. I want to ask you something kind of like, like a biggest regret or like biggest thing you've learned over just just something like that to close us out here. You know, do not underestimate the power of liquidity. You know, I, I look back at these markets, particularly, you know, in, in the 2000s, we do fundamental analysis, balance tables, and liquidity, as we witnessed last year, when they were draining the market with liquidity, we were all bullish on fundamentals, and this market kept going down. In the 2000s, um, you know, fundamentals were quite bearish, yet the market kept going up. Why? Because liquidity was driving it. And so if there's anything I can leave, you know, all the listeners to, 
have a very profound appreciation for dollar liquidity when you think about this in the context of fundamentals. I love it. It comes back to everything else that we cover here day in and day out. Yep, Jeff, exactly. a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for Great, joining us Kelly, today. It was a pleasure. Congrats. Thank you. Best wishes. Thanks. Jeff Curry, uh, departing Goldman Sachs. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.